First Peter chapter four verse seven. We're going to be in First Peter chapter four verse seven a as as we as we want. There are actually a couple of seats at a table right over there if you all want to sit right there. There we go. Ken wants company. First Peter chapter four verse seven. Peter says the end of all things is near. Now we're just going to stop right there because if you remember where we were last week. We dealt with a whole lot, but we didn't get to the real... What did, what did he mean by this? As we dealt with those verses that followed, the, the rest of verse 7 into verse 11, uh, we dealt with all that, but we didn't really deal with what Peter what meant when he said, the end of all things is near. So what we're going to do is we're actually going to take a little time on this verse, because there's a lot here, because there's a lot of confusion about this as well. Um, Peter had a very, very strong belief that he was living in the days of the end. And you're going to see that, that that's good. Peter had a strong, strong belief that he was living in the days of the end. And what he meant by that was the days that were leading right up to the day of the Lord. Go with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at verses 10 through 14 and you'll see a little bit more clearly what I'm talking about. And we'll get to 2 Peter when we move from 1 Peter into the, ne- into the next book uh, later down in our study. But just look at what he says here in verses 10 through 14 to give you an idea of how Peter looked at what was coming up. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Now, again, Peter, when he said the end of all things is near, he's referring to the fact that he believed that the day of the Lord was coming soon. That the day of the Lord, the final epoch, if you will, in the history of mankind on the earth was, 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 was about to arrive. My question to you is this. Was he wrong? No. We got one wrong. We got one no. <laughs> you, well, let me just say to you, you, he is not wrong. And I'm going to show you why he's not wrong. Okay? Go with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verses 42 through 44. As Jesus had just finished saying in Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 42 through 44. As he just finished talking about how the day of his return will be like the days of Noah, he says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. So again, Jesus is just simply saying this. I'm coming back. And you need to be what? You need to be ready. You need to be expecting it. Go with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 46. In Luke 12, starting in verse 35, Jesus says, Be dressed and ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. 
It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth. He will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Look closely at who asked this next question. Peter, the one who's writing the book we're studying. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now, let's be honest. Before we go to Jesus' answer, isn't that kind of what we're all sitting here waiting for? You're all sitting here waiting and saying, Jim, was he talking about his second coming? Was he talking about the rapture of the church? What's he talking about? This whole, the Son of Man comes and you don't know when. And Which is he talking about? And Peter has that same question. He says, are you, are you telling this to us or are you telling this to everybody? And look at how Jesus answers and doesn't answer his question. He says, who then is the faithful and wise? The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming and he then begins to beat the men servants and maid servants and eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour when he is not aware of it. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. So, help me out. When Peter says, Lord, are you telling this to us or to everybody? What was Jesus' answer? Yes. Be watching. Be ready. You see, the Lord knows us real well. He gives us glimpses that His return is to be, well, the Bible word we like to use is imminent. That's one of the reasons why I believe the Bible teaches in a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. That's why I believe the Bible says we are to be ready at any time for Him to come. But at the same time, if we knew when it was going to happen, what would we be doing? Some of us would be nothing until that moment. Other of us would be buying things we can't afford on credit and say, let Satan pay for it after I'm gone. We have to be honest, most of us would probably not respond the proper way if we knew when it was going to happen. And he said to his disciples when they said, when is this going to happen? Or He says, not for you know the times or the dates that the Father set by his own authority. Now again, you've heard me teach on this tremendously, and if you, and I mean by a lot, not by well, but if you think well too, that's fine. But, but what, I, what I'm saying is, is you've heard me teach on it when I've done a, teach on, taught on Revelation, it's on the website there. I really believe the Bible teaches without question there's a distinction between God's teaching for the church and for the nation of Israel. And when you understand the difference when you look at prophecy, it becomes very, very clear. But, and I do believe that God's going to take His church out before that final seven year period for the nation of Israel. But the thing that He wants us to see here is this. We are living in the last time period, if you will, right before Jesus comes back to set up His kingdom on the earth. With that in mind, we're in the last days. You see, Peter also knew that God would take longer to return than we would think. If he wanted to, I can prove it to you. Go back to First Peter. I'm sorry, not First Peter, Second Peter, and look at chapter three, verses three through nine. For those of you that say, "Well, Peter was wrong. He thought that it was going to happen right then." Well, 
Look at what he says in 2 Peter. Yeah, Paul did too. But neither one of them were wrong because they were living with the attitude that Jesus told them to. But look at what Peter also says, though, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3-9. through 9. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, that'll be important for where we're going to go. In the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So what you got to understand what Peter's saying is, is he's saying, look, it could take a while. And if he chooses it for it to take a while, he has his reasons, and don't fall into that mindset of those who are going to say, ah, where is this coming, he says. But at the same time, he was living in what Jesus had told him to when he asked, and said, well, who are you talking to here? He's living in the attitude that Jesus said, be watching, be ready. So if you're watching and ready, you need to be expecting it at any time. Does anybody have any idea why Jesus also wants us to live with this mindset? Definitely excited. There's more to it. Keep going. Somebody else. We're more likely to be witnessing. We're more likely to be witnessing. Keep going. We won't miss it. We won't miss it. <laughs> Go to First John chapter three. First John chapter three. How great is the love. The Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Look at verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in Him does what? purifies himself just as he is pure. He's also had us to live with this expectation of his return at any moment so that we will live holy, separated lives. Because if you think it ain't happening for a while, you'll get lazy. You know how I can prove it to you? Alright guys, confession time here. When your wife leaves town for a few days and you got the house to yourself, what happens to the house? It starts to get a little messy, does it not? Because there ain't anybody saying, pick that up. There ain't anybody saying, wipe that up. But you know full well what we do right before they come back. We scour the place. And we make it look like we have been taking wonderful care of the house. We're all like that, folks. It's within us all. If we knew when He was coming, we'd be lazy until that moment. But He wants us to live holy and pure lives because you don't know when He's coming. And some of you have heard me say this, and I'm going to say it to you again. I can prove to you that Jesus is going to return in your lifetime. 
Now, some of you heard me say rapture. I didn't say He was going to rapture the church in your lifetime. He, he may. I said He's coming for you. He's returning for you in your lifetime. Do you understand that if you were to go see Him today, Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you in John 14, I will come back and so that you can be with me where I am. Folks, Jesus is returning for you in your lifetime. Don't sit back and say, well, we don't know when the second coming is actually going to be. There isn't a temple yet that has to be rebuilt. And there are these things that still have to happen in the earthquakes of Matthew 24. Haven't really been the ones we're talking about. And, and so there's still going to be a rapture and there's going to be a tribulation period. All those things are true. But if you live with an attitude that says, eh, you're gonna, you misunderstand the fact that Jesus could come back for you before then. He's coming in your lifetime. The end of all things is near. So, why did Peter say that? Why did he say the end of all things is near? Because the last days began, folks, when Jesus came to the earth in the flesh. Do you see how Peter, back in chapter 3, verse 3 said, in the last days there will be people scoffing? And it sure sounds like he's talking about the future. I want to show you scripturally that if someone, if someone says, do you believe we're in the last days? And you say yes, you're right. Because actually we've been in the last days for almost 2,000 years. Let me show you real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, In the past, God spoke, spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and at many times in His very, various ways. But in these what? In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. Here the Hebrew writer says, We are in the last days already, because Jesus has come to the earth. Go to Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 26. in the middle of a paragraph or a sentence dealing with some other context, but in this he makes this statement. The Hebrew writer says, Then Christ, verse 26 of chapter 9, Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now He has appeared once for all. How do your translations read now? Some say at the end of the ages. What are some other ways that it's worded? At the consumption of the ages. At the end of the world? Is that how yours says? Did you catch that? He has now appeared once for all at the end of the ages, end of the world, the consumption of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Folks, I want you to understand, the end of all things is near. You know why? We're living in the last time period before Jesus' return to the earth. This is it. There's not a whole lot else going to happen. He's coming back. And we've been in this time period since Jesus came to the earth. Let me show you one more place. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. You might not remember it already. We've already covered that section. But look at verse 20. That was a long time ago. That's right. Well, I'm not sure if that was in 2012. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. He, Jesus, was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these what? What do translations say? Last times. What do others say? Last times. So every translation says we're in the last times. So why did Peter say that we were the end of all things is near? Because he knew we are living in the very last time period before the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. It's the time of the Gentiles. And when it comes to a close, he finishes that last seven year period for the nation of Israel and will literally step foot on the earth. 
By the way, if you go back and look at Matthew 24, you'll notice that what Jesus said when He said these are the signs, He said you'll see war, hear of wars and rumors of wars, and, but the end is not yet. Then there'll be earthquakes and famines and all this kind of stuff. He's actually talking to the Jews. You know why I can prove to you He's talking to the Jews and not the church? We've tried to read the church into that passage, but it's not. He's talking to the Jews, and one of the reasons I can show you is, is He said... When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, get out of, get out of town. Uh, that isn't something the church is going to see, first of all. And secondly, he made this statement. He said, pray that your flight, when you're supposed to get out of town, when you see the Antichrist in the temple, pray that your flight doesn't happen when? On the Sabbath. Why would he tell the church, I hope it doesn't happen on a Sabbath? Hopefully you understand that Colossians chapter 2 says, Paul himself said, don't let anybody judge you on whether or not you keep a new moon festival or Sabbath day. These were all destined to pass away. They're pictures of what was to come. The reality has been found in Christ. We in the church are not under the law. We are actually in grace under Christ. Now, the idea of a day of rest is a wonderful picture that God has given us, but we're not being held to a Sabbath day. Unfortunately, many of us who grew up in the church had preachers and teachers who were very legalistic, who tried to read the church into Old Testament promises when there's a distinction between the church and Israel, and many of us were told we weren't allowed to do this or that because it was the Sabbath. But actually, scripturally, in Colossians, it says we're never letting anybody judge us on whether or not we kept the Sabbath. But Jesus told the hearers of what He warned about coming in Matthew 24, don't let it happen on Sabbath. Why? Because after He gathers His church at the end of the times of the Gentiles, and He finishes that last seven year period for the nation of Israel, they're going to go back to the Old Testament law. That's why there's going to be a temple. That's why there's going to be an Antichrist stepping into the wing of the temple. He's going to put an end to sacrifice. All that stuff. That's going to, they're going to go back to, for one last seven year period, that age of law. We're gone at that point, folks. When's it going to happen? I couldn't tell you. But I can know this, but soon, near, whatever that means is, we're in the last time period. And I'm going to show you some scriptures that will hopefully challenge you to even more be ready. Alright? Go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. You see, Peter knew that this time period, the last one before Jesus returned to set up the kingdom on the earth culminated in the judgment of the people of God first. Look what he says here in chapter 4, verse 17. He said, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. Some of your translations say household of faith. And if it begins with us, some of your translations say God's people, if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And we're going to come back to this section a little bit, Lord willing, time-wise. But you see what he says here? He's saying, the end of all things is near. We're in the last time period before the return of Jesus. Oh, and by the way, it's time now for the judgment of God's people to begin. Go to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Look at verse 9. Actually, I I can't help it. We've got to go back to verse 7. Go to verse 7, 7, 8, and 9. James chapter 5, look at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers, until what? 
till the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Here James is talking like that now. Peter's talking like that. Paul was talking like that. And if you fall into or hear anybody say, oh, they all thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, but it never did. I'm not so sure. Who did, what did Peter say? In the last days, there'll be scoffers that say, where is this coming? But look at what he says in verse 9. Don't grumble against one another or each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. By the way, who's he talking about? Jesus. Jim, I thought we weren't going to be judged. See, we don't understand. The Bible actually teaches that Christians will be judged. We're not going to be judged on whether or not we get into heaven. That's already been taken care of. That's a gift that God's already given us, kept in heaven for us. We're shielded by His power. But He is now in the process of conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. He's in the process of molding and shaping His children. And oh, by the way, He's doing it in this time period until He comes and gets us because He's preparing us for what is to come. You're not just living your life until He comes and gets you. Whether you realize it or not, you have become His workmanship, His project, and He isn't just going to sit there and let you do what you want. A lot of times we think, well, I'm running from God. No, He's letting you wander maybe, but you ain't getting very far. Because He who began this good work in you will what? He'll finish it. He'll complete it. And so understand that when you said yes to Jesus Christ, don't you know you've been bought with a price? You're not your own. You should no longer live for yourselves, but live for the One who died for you and has has redeemed you and and ransomed you, if you will. Don't think, well, I'm I'm on my own here. You know, I I can obey God or not obey God. Well, you can fool yourself into thinking that you're, you're in control of your own life, but you don't realize the Bible says God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. For some of you in here, you might have run from God in your life, and you know full well you were never away from Him because He was always there, and you were never happy, even though you tried to convince yourself you were. But you were miserable because for some reason, God never let you go. In His love, He pursued you, and He tracked you down, and He says, you done running? And then He lovingly continues His work to make you into what He wants you to be. Go to Romans chapter 13. This will be our last passage before we actually get to 1 Peter chapter 4. This is the introduction or the conclusion of last week's message. 1 Peter chapter, sorry, Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Romans chapter 13. Did I say Romans chapter 11 or Romans 11? 13, good. Verses 11 through 14. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. We can believe that one now, right? We do not know what soon means or near means, but we know that much. It's nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature.
Folks, the fact that Peter says the end of all things is near should cause us to live set apart, obedient, holy lives within our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because He could come at any moment. Be watching. Be ready. By the way, when Jesus said, could come in the first, third, watch of the night, does God know when it's going to happen? Of course. But He's intentionally not told us. So stop sitting around trying to figure it out. Spend that energy on making sure that when He comes, you're ready. You understand? I don't think God is wanting to hear when He shows up, I knew it! I had it all figured out! It was going to be this day! I think He's more interested in you saying, I've been looking forward to this day. And I'm ready. You see, there was a picture in the Bible that God gave us of what it is our attitude is supposed to be. You see, we've become the bride of Christ. And you remember in the Jewish marriage ceremony and, and, and all, the, the groom would purchase the bride. He would agree with the father on what the purchase price was. He would purchase the bride. Did she go with him right away? No. He went back to his place to prepare and make ready the marriage ceremony. What was the bride's job? To be ready. She was to bathe, purify, shave if need to, whatever. She was to get herself ready. She was to get herself ready. Because she didn't know when He was coming back. But she was to be always ready for that time. And she was to be making sure she was ready. Oh, by the way, there's a wonderful, wonderful picture though. The groom would give the bride gifts before that time. So that she would be wearing them when He came back. And she didn't know when He was coming. And she didn't know when He was coming. Yeah. Not until the Father said, go get her. Not until the Father said, go get her. So folks, you have been purchased by Jesus Christ. And not only that, He's given you spiritual gifts that you are to be using so that when He comes, He will find you using the gifts He gave you. Please listen closely to me. I didn't say that He would find you going to church. I didn't say that He would find you tithing. I didn't say that He would find you voting in business meeting. Hopefully He doesn't. I said that He came, He's coming and wanting to find you using the gifts He gave you and wearing them proudly when He comes. I hope Jesus comes back in the middle of my sermon. I hope He's in the middle of my teaching the Bible somewhere. And by the way... Chances are real good because if you ever know me, I'm going to be teaching the Bible 24 hours a day wherever I go, whoever I'm hanging out with. I hope He lets me finish at least my second point. But I just, I, I want Him to come back while I'm doing what it is He's called me to do. I pray the same for you. If your gift is giving, be giving until He comes. If your gifts are administration, use your gifts for the body's help until He comes. If your gift is mercy, use your gifts until He comes. Whatever it is He's given you to do, find out and get to work. Because you will then be ready for His return. You'll be ready for His return. Let's now go to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read to you verses 12-19. through 19. It only took us a half an hour on one half a verse. That's a record. That is a record. Actually, I've been getting a little faster, but 
There's just so much good stuff here. Listen to chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. It says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Now in order to understand this passage, you've got to keep in mind that Peter wrote this with a strong belief that what the Christians of his day were going through was tied to God's plan for them in the last days. Alright? In other words, the suffering, remember, at this point, they're under Nero. I, I, I think that at this point, he hadn't begun burning Christians at the stake just yet. If our time of when we think this Bible, this book was written was true. Nero was in power, but he hadn't burned any Christians at the stake yet, but it was coming soon. The, the pressure was definitely amping up. And remember, Peter believed we were living in the last days. He believed that the end was near, that we should be watching and ready. He also said that it was time for God to judge and to shape the people of God. And that's what He does in these last days that we're in. He shapes and prepares His children for what is for the life to come. Now, before we get into some words here that Peter uses that I think are really cool, and unfortunately, the NIV doesn't bring them out. If you've got an NIV, you're going to miss something unless we kind of pull it out for you. The NIV and their translating took a couple of words out that are in the actual text, and they used a different word which changed the meaning, and you miss an incredibly cool picture, which we're going to get to in a second. But I want you, before we even get into this, to just understand that Peter understood about suffering. Go with me to Acts chapter 5. I'm just going to give you a quick highlight tour of some of the um, episodes in Peter's life that are recorded in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, look at verses 17 and 18. Says the, then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. By the way, Peter is a part of that group. Now, um, if you know the story, God releases them from the jail. And what do they do? They go right back to the streets and begin preaching again. Alright? So, they're gathered up again. And uh, um, Gamaliel actually says, Hey, you know, if they're from God, you can't stop them. If they're men, it'll die, so leave them alone. And verse 40 says, His speech persuaded them... And they called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Peter was in this group. He was arrested, thrown in the public jail. God released him. They went right back to preaching. They were gathered again. Sanhedrin says, what are we going to do about these guys? One of the guys says, we can't stop it if it's of God. And if it's a man, it'll die. Leave it alone. So they decided, okay. So they flogged them. And if you know anything about flogging, that wasn't fun. 
and they went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Does that sound familiar to what Peter has said here? Listen to what it says here. He said in verse 14 of chapter 4, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And then he says... um, Verse 19, so those then who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator. We see in here that actually, if you suffer for Christ, you should be happy. Now that sounds weird. And we're going to go somewhere tonight, because I know I'm talking to a group of Christians in America who really don't know suffering. We think suffering is when the air conditioner breaks and we have to wait until tomorrow to get the guy to come in and fix it. Let's be honest. We've lived a very comfortable and blessed life. We really don't know what suffering is. But I want to show you tonight from Scripture that actually, if you are God's child and He is sovereignly over in control of your life, and He's using all things to work for good, and He is shaping you for His purposes, God can use any kind of suffering for His purposes... And as long as you're not suffering because of stupid choices you've made, because you've been like a meddler or something like that, you know, stuck your nose where it didn't belong, as long as you're not suffering for things you stupidly did, the rest of the suffering is according to God's will, and you're suffering for the sake of Christ. Now, that sounds crazy to us, because we think suffering for the sake of Christ is when we profess Christ and someone says, shut up. But have you ever thought about the fact that if God uses suffering to shape you, you probably wouldn't go through that type of suffering if you weren't His child, correct? Now, rain falls on the just and the unjust. But I'm going to tell you, I think Christians go through more suffering than non-Christians, according to the Scriptures, because we have a Father who loves us. Now, that sounds crazy, but I'll explain what I mean by that in just a second. Let me give you another example of... uh, of Peter's suffering. Look at chapter 5 again. Look at verses 40. Sorry, we just did 40 and 41. Go to chapter 12 and look at verses 1 through 5. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 and look at verses 1 through 5. So it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now again, in this story, as they're praying, God releases Peter again. This time he just walks out and shows up at the door. And it's one of the funniest stories in the Bible because they're all in there praying earnestly that God would release Peter from prison. And Peter goes and shows up at the door of the prayer meeting. And the girl, Rhoda, who's at the door, runs in and says, Hey, Peter's at the door. And they all said, No, he's not. (laughs) Sounds like they were praying in faith. But that's a wonderful picture of the fact that we're in the same way sometimes. If you go back with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, though, you'll see a word that some of your translations use that the NIV doesn't use, and unfortunately, they've hurt you a little bit by not using the word that's actually there. Verse 12 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. Some of you that don't have NIV, 
What's the word they use instead of painful? Fiery. Fiery ordeal. The word fiery is actually in the original manuscripts. Fiery is the word that should have been translated here. Because actually, Peter is using smelting terms. Does anybody know what smelting is? It's a purification of metal. What do you do to metal to purify it? You heat it up. And then the dross, the stuff that's not pure, comes to the surface. And then you scrape that off. And then you have pure metal. When Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're experiencing, or fiery ordeal, he's using smelting terms. Because actually, God is doing something through what He puts us through. What's He trying to do? He's trying to conform us in the image of Christ. But He's also dealing with the flesh, is He not? He's trying to put it to death. And so God will put us through smelting process, if you will, to get what's there that needs to be dealt with, that is not pure, to come out. Now folks, those of you that struggle with your temper, you can hide it for a time. But then something will happen that brings it to the surface, does it not? Some of you struggle with worry, and you might look real good on Sunday when they say, How are you doing? Fine. Fine. But something may happen that brings the real you to the surface, does it not? And all of a sudden you begin to worry and you begin to fear. All of us have aspects of our flesh that are still there. And God will put you through stuff to show you what He already knows is there that you might not know. He intends this for your good. But if you keep going and pretending like everything's fine and and I don't got any issues and you're not willing to let Him shape you, what's He got to do to get that stuff that He's trying to get out to the surface? He's got to add a little bit more heat to the fire, does He not? So folks, I would just say it will be a lot easier on you if you would just be willing to acknowledge who you are and say, Lord, this is an aspect of who I am that I want you to deal with and I want to give it to you before you have to put the burner on high. Go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at verses 6 and 7. He just talked about this awesome salvation we've been given that's kept in heaven for us. But he says in verse 6 of chapter 1, In this, about this salvation we've received, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come, these trials have come, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Did you catch that? There's two things in here. He's using smelting terms again. But your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes when no refined by fire, may be proved genuine. God is putting you through the fire or the furnace of affliction for the purpose of bringing you to a deeper understanding of who you are and of who He is so that He can purify you and get some of that stuff to the surface. Stop fighting it. Stop saying, why is this happening? Stop pretending that you're not upset by it. Have you ever looked at the book of Job? 
and really closely looked at the book of Job. Yes, when the trouble comes and he loses his family, he says, you know what, ain't no big deal. A naked I came into this world, naked I returned. That's how we read it, isn't it? You know, you know, you know, praise the Lord. And then the next trial comes and his wife says, curse God and die. He says, oh, no, no, you're talking like a crazy, crazy woman. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we accept the bad as well as the good from God? And we stop reading the book of Job because we think, oh, I could never be like that. But if you keep reading and you take the time, you'll all of a sudden see that God keeps the fire on Job. He not only allows Satan to do what he does to him, he not only allows it a second time, he then has these friends come and their help for the first seven days when they say nothing. But then what do they do? They become an instrument of the enemy and they all of a sudden become the third trial. A lot of us don't realize that. We think that he only had two trials. Uh Uh-uh, he had a third And it was his friends who sat there and said, all right, we've sat here long enough, but Job, the only way you're going through what you're going through is if you did something wrong. And Job says, you don't understand. It has nothing to do with what I've done. I don't know why God's doing this. And to be honest with you, I would love to have a chance to talk with him. But man can't talk to God. He'd need a mediator of some sort. And oh, I I wish I could just state my case. I wish I could just... Look at him face to face and tell him how he's done me wrong. Later on he says, you know what? I wish there had never been knees to receive me. That's an incredible word picture, folks. Job says, I wish I had never been born. And I can almost picture God saying, now we're getting somewhere. Job, you already are more pure than most Christians in how you responded to the first. But I want to take you to a deeper walk. I want to purify you. Like some people may never be purified. And God turned up the fire on Job. And Job all of a sudden gets to that place where he says, I don't think this is right. I don't think this is fair. I wish I was dead. I wish I'd never been born. He says, you know what? There's more hope for a tree than there is for a man. You cut a tree down, at least a shoot comes back. What, what's there for man after he dies? And through all of this, though, God begins to prophesy some of the most amazing prophecies about Jesus and what an awesome thing He's going to do for us and has done for us through Job. But by the time He gets to the end of His trial, God shows up. And if you look closely, all the questions that Job wanted to ask God went out the window when He saw Him face to face. He said, I've heard of you. But now I've seen you, and I'm good. He never got an answer for why. But what was God doing in Job's life? This much we know. He was orchestrating it, even letting Satan have his way to a point. God controls the limit of what Satan can do. But he was doing it to bring some of that stuff that was there in Job that you would have never seen until the fire got turned up. Jim, go ahead. I'm just going to say and look at this and uh, look what it says, that the genuineness of your faith, nobody, nobody gets there without faith. You're right. And so when we're looking at the, the precious metal, pure metal actually, what he's doing is the faith. Yes. So can you honestly say, I can have faith, perfect faith or excellent faith without going through the trial? No. The answer is You cannot have perfect faith or purified faith without going through the trials. These have come so that your faith will be proved genuine. But also, count it all joy, my brethren, when you face trials of different kinds. Why? Because God's using them to produce character. 
Perseverance, faith, hope. He's using the trials to mature you. When we go through affliction of any kind, what is our first response? What did I do wrong? Why me? How do I make it stop? Is there a pill I can take? But the Bible says that some of our some of our suffering, some of our affliction is because we made bad choices. Okay? But at the same time, if it's not because of a bad choice, remember back in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God says, I caused you to hunger. I made you hungry. So that what? I would know what was in your heart, and that's not for Him, but that's for us. Because He already knows what's in our heart. And so that I could then feed you with something you'd never experienced before. And that you would know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. If you, by the way, right now are going through a trial, an affliction, whether it's physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever, your Father, if it's not because of stupid mistakes you've made, your Father is shaping you right now. He's loving you right now. may not feel like that. But it is. Let me give you four passages real quick. Go to Job chapter 23. And look at verse 10. Job's right before Psalms. Job chapter 23, look at verse 10. Job says, But he knows the way that I take, and when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. And Job was right. He thought he was further along in the smelting process than he was. But he knew that God was putting him through a smelting process. Look at Proverbs. Sorry, not, we'll go to Psalms. We'll just move in, in the book order here. Go to Psalm 66, verse 10. For you, O God tested us. You refined us like silver. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 3. Proverbs 17, verse 3. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. It's no accident that they're using smelting terms here. I always kind of chuckle when I read this, though, because most of us want to come out as gold, but we only want the crucible. You know, it takes less heat to purify silver than it does gold. We want to come out as gold, but could we have the silver fire? That, that's what, that'd be good for me. No, the crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord is the one who tests the heart. He knows what's really there. We don't. The heart is deceitful and it's wicked. Who can know it? But God knows it. And He knows our heart. And He knows what's there. He loves you anyway. He's already saved you. You're already redeemed. But between that point and when He comes and gets you, He's wanting to clean some of that stuff out for a couple of reasons. There's more than two, but let me bring out two. One is so that He could use you as a pure instrument for His glory in the world as a witness. Also, as you're going to see, it's also because He wants to reward you for eternity for what He's been allowed to do in and through you. And oh, by the way, that's also for His glory. We're going to shine like the stars forever and ever, the Bible says. And we're going to bring glory to God because of what He did in and through us in this life. But what we do is we keep trying to get off the operating table before the surgery's done. 
I always jokingly told in all my years of pastor and going to visit people before they had surgery, I always told them this right before they left. I would say, lay still. Now, of course, with the drugs they give you, that's not a problem. But the Bible says that He is working on us. He's shaping. He's molding. And we're too busy saying, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening? How can I get out of this? Why don't you just stay on the operating table and let him finish what he's doing? When the surgery's over, he'll put you in recovery. The trial's only for a season. We just elongate the season. We do elongate the season. Especially when, you know, when you, I always picture like a, a mom trying to put her kid in the hot bath water. You remember when your kid's little like, ah, 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 and they wouldn't get in it? The sooner you get in it, the sooner you can get out, kid. You know what I'm saying? Just get in it. And you can get out. But if you keep prolonging this, folks, I don't know how else to say it. Well, how did Peter say it? Don't be surprised at the fiery trial that you're facing. That as if something strange were happening to you. But isn't it true that a lot of us Christians, because of some of the bad theology we've been given over the years, when trials come, we think we've done something wrong. Or we're, we're not doing it right. I'm supposed to be an overcomer. And I'm supposed to have a fancy car in the driveway. Go to Isaiah 48. Isaiah 48, verse 10. God says, See, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace... Of affliction. Does anybody catch that? What's for silver? The crucible. What's for gold? Furnace. Because I've refined you, though not as silver, I've tested you in the furnace of affliction. God wants you to come forth as gold. So guess what? You're probably not going to stay in the silver heat. I heard someone say, Praise God. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Verse 11. Yes, I'm doing this for my own sake. For my own glory, I'm doing this. God has also promised to reward those who have come through the testing by fire, folks. Do you know that? Go back to 1 Peter chapter 4. Look at verse 13. I want this verse to sink in. And I want you to tell me what word jumps off at, out at you from this verse. He says, but rejoice, and don't, don't think something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. What word jumps out at you there? Partakers of Christ. What else? Somebody else. Overjoyed. That's what jumps out at me. Think about that. So that you'll be overjoyed when Jesus is revealed. What he's saying there is, is because you've let God do in and through you what He wanted to do and you stopped running from it, when Jesus comes, you're going to be, on, be beyond excited. You will rejoice with exaltation. Rejoice with exaltation. You're, you're going to flip out. You're going to You're going to shout. But for some of us, and I hate to say this, but it's biblical, so I'm going to say it. Some of us, when we when that day comes, we're going to suffer loss. 
You're going to suffer loss. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you have not let Him fully shape you because you resist Him, Listen to what it says. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, look at verses uh, 10 and following. Paul says, By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he'll receive his reward, and you'll be overjoyed. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Folks, you can't deny it. There's going to be those in heaven who are less rewarded than those... who are in heaven for eternity. I don't know how that works out. I don't know how that all plays out. But don't be like those ladies I grew up with in my church in New Hampshire who said, I'll just be happy to be there. That's enough for me. Like I said, when I was a kid, that sounded spiritual. The more I read my Bible, the more I realized how sinful it was. It was in complete opposition to what Jesus said. Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. They said, no thank you, I'm good enough for being in heaven. And their false humility was of the devil. When your master says, store up treasure in heaven, and you say, no, I'm good. You go from there. You know, Duke and I have been reading this book by uh, A.W. Tozer on the crucified life. And he talks about those who produce a crop of 30 and some 60 and some 100. We're supposed to all be producing a crop of 100. That's his desire. Some of us are satisfied with 30. Now yes, he gave one five and another two and another one. He's not expecting the same of each of us. But he's still wanting to produce through us the full measure of all he wants to do in our lives. And most of us would say 30 is enough for me. Oh, by the way, as Jim has pointed out, though, you want to move into that realm of having Him produce in you what He wants? you got to go through the furnace of affliction. Embrace it. Oh, it's for a season. Your Father knows what you can handle. There comes a point when He turns it down and, and has already cleaned off the dross and He lets you come out in what you are. And, and then He has a time of, of, like I said earlier, when your surgery is over, you go into re, uh, the, the recovery room for a while. And then He wants to do through you what He's done. And then, oh, by the way, if you keep living on this earth until it comes, He'll put the fire back on you at another time. And it might even be in the same area that He would work on before. But it's a different level. You might have thought He was done with you in the area of forgiveness, but no, 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 no. That was all He was doing at that point. Now He's going to turn it back up later on. Don't think, oh, I'm a failure. I hear I'm learning, learning forgiveness again. He says, oh, no, no, no. You've been promoted to the next grade. You've heard me teach on this before. You know, when we're at school, you're in second grade, and the second grade math is hard, but by the end of the year, you get the hang of it. And then you have a ceremony. Boom, boom, boom. Now you're a third grader. And then third grade math is hard, but after a while, you get the hang of it, and you graduate. Move on. Boom, boom, boom. You're in fourth grade. In the same way, God is moving us to the next levels of understanding and growth. We just don't have a ceremony. Maybe we need to. 
Maybe when we come through one of these trials, the only way that would ever happen is if we actually knew what was going on in each other's lives. Sad thing is, most of us don't even know what's going on in each other's lives. All the best we get is when we talk about trials, someone in the back will say amen, and that's about all we know. How are we going to celebrate when you've been promoted? How are we going to celebrate unless you share your burdens one with another and so fulfill the law of Christ? Folks, there's nothing wrong with saying to somebody, here's what I'm going through. And don't say it so that they can help you get out of it. Just say, hey, this is what my father is doing in my life. I meet every Tuesday morning when I'm in town with a friend named Dan. And we meet for breakfast at a McDonald's in the area. And it's so cool. We've been doing it now for over a year. And the people at McDonald's miss us if we're missing. Because we show up with our big black Bibles and we go sit in that same area. And we're well known in there. And they even know what we order. Want the usual? Yep. And we go there and we sit. But you know what? His wife is going through terminal cancer right now. I'm going through stuff in my life, as some of you know. And God is shaping us both in different ways. And all we do is come and just encourage each other and we say to each other, don't get off the operating table. And we talk about what God is doing in our life and how can I pray for you and how can you pray for me. We don't sit there and mope and moan, but we encourage each other. And you know what's cool? I'm seeing in Him the purification process. I'm watching Him grow as a man of God. He's seeing in me the same thing. And we get together to talk to each other about what God is doing and we don't say, how can I take this from you? God will take it away when it's time. Let me walk with you as you go through it. Go to Matthew chapter 19. Let me encourage you with one more passage. And then... In the little, I know we're a little bit longer than normal, but there's something I want to do in closing tonight. In Matthew chapter 19, I just encourage you with this passage. Look at verses 27 through 30. Look who's talking. He's just dealt with the rich young ruler, and Jesus makes the comment because the rich young ruler goes away and rejects what Jesus offers him. And he says it's hard for a rich man to get into heaven. That went against all the theology they had been taught their whole life. They had been taught that the rich were the ones that God was blessing. The poor were the ones who were out of the will of God. He said it's hard for a rich person to get into heaven. They're like, huh? And then he says, but with man this is impossible. With God all things are possible. Then look at verse 27. Peter answered him, we've left everything to follow you. <laughs> By the way, just you're talking about how the poor are the ones that are going to be blessed. Jesus, just in case you missed it. We gave it all up. <laughs> There's no Bentleys in the driveway. We've given it all up. What will there be for us? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will sit also on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's literal, folks. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Did you see what he says? But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Sounds to me like Peter knew full well what he meant when he said to the Christians of his day, 
Don't be surprised if you're having it rough. It's right, you're right on schedule. And when Jesus comes, you're going to be overjoyed. Because He's promised what? Did anybody catch that? What has He promised? How much? A hundred times as much. i got to be honest with you. I don't even know what that means. Sounds good though. Did Becky proofread my Bible? Yeah, you skipped over wife in that. Did I skip over wife? <laughs> I get so excited sometimes my brain runs ahead of me. Yep. It depends on which manuscript. It honestly depends on which manuscript your Bible is using. All right. Here's the last thing I want to do. Go back to First Peter chapter four, and we're going to wrap up with this. First Peter chapter. Duke wrote his own Bible. First Peter chapter four. Look at. Uh, look closely here at. Uh, um, What he says then in verses 17 to the end of the chapter. He said, For it's time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will and His purposes should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. Did you hear what he said? He said, if God is so seemingly hard on us, what's it going to be like for those who reject Him? Tribulation. Tribulation is right. How many of you remember the movie Karate Kid? I know we're going way back. You remember Karate Kid? You remember in the movie Karate Kid, Miyagi agreed to teach Daniel's son karate. And when he shows up for his first karate lesson, what does Miyagi have him do? Wax on, wax off. And he spends into the night until his arms are falling off. Did you sit there and say, Boy, that Miyagi's a jerk. No, you thought to yourself, he's got a reason. Then the next day he comes back and he's ready for his karate lesson. And what does Miyagi say? Sand the floor. Sand the floor. Did you sit there and say, while you're in the theater, boy, why is Miyagi doing this to him? This isn't fair. This is child labor. No, you sat there and you thought, Miyagi's got a reason. Daniel said, I might not understand it right now, but I know he's got something that he's got in mind. And when he's exhausted and it's pitch black, sends him home and comes back the next day for his karate lesson. And what does he say? Paint the fence. And you didn't sit there and say, I'm leaving this movie theater. This is, this is cruel. No, you sat there because you believed that the wise Miyagi had a reason for why he was doing that to Daniel. Correct? Why do we give Mr. Miyagi more credit than we give God? Folks, I don't know why sometimes I'm in a situation where it feels like all I'm doing is waxing the floor. Or all I'm doing is painting the fence or sanding the floor or waxing, waxing the car. There are times you're in the middle of it and you're saying, just like Daniel, I don't understand this. God, where are you? What is going on? But the Bible says that we need to commit ourselves to our faithful Creator and keep doing what He said to do. He has got a plan. And He's doing something that will manifest itself down the road. You don't have to see it now.
Real faith says, I trust Him. He's good. My version says, and trust. And trust. Not commit. Yep. Commit is something you do. And trust, trust. is all yours. Yep. Trust Him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You so much for this chance to study Your Word tonight. Thank You for the fact that I know full well as we talk to a room of folks this size, there's stuff going on. As I said to someone today, if we're not in a trial, you just came out of one and you're, or you're about to go into one. That's just the way life is. But Lord, You've shown us tonight that it's for our best. May we not be people who run from trials, but we embrace them because You are a good God who uses them to purify us and to make us into something that You're wanting to glorify Yourself through and reward us for, for Your own glory for eternity. Father, may... We first examine to make sure that uh, what's going on isn't because of disobedience. Make sure we're not suffering because we're a meddler or some kind of a criminal. But at the same time, if that's the case, Lord, may we turn it over to You and ask for Your cleansing. But if our trial, we see no reason except God must be doing something, may we then say this is good and allow You to finish the surgery and accomplish for Your glory the purposes You have in mind. And Lord, may we encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. Thank You that the end of all things is nearer now at the end of the Bible study than it was when we started. And may we live holy and pure lives ready for when You come. And may we let You finish what You're doing in each of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.